according to that song, The Blood That Washed Me. I was about six months old in the Lord. I had put my trust in him as a junior now in college. And there was this particular fellow that was going to preach I had not heard of. His name was John Hunter. And so some of us new believers decided that we would go hear him at this small Baptist church in Waco, Texas. He was a fellow that was very closely linked to uh, Colonel Major or Major Ian Thomas and another fellow by the name of Stuart Briscoe, whose son Pete led uh, Bentry and Dallas Bible Church for so many years. These guys were from Cape and Ray in England. I knew none of those things. I just went to the church. And he was speaking on this subject about the spiritual life called fruitfulness. My expectations began to rise because I certainly wanted as a 20-year-old single guy to live for Jesus Christ. And I didn't know where life was going to take me, but I was all ears. And so it was this subject of fruitfulness, a secret to the Christian life abiding, that he began to open up. And I have never forgotten that from the time I was 20 years old. That we as branches connected to the vine do not produce fruit. We only bear fruit that the vine produces. Thus how mandatory it is that we stay closely connected in an intimate way to Jesus Christ the vine himself. I never have forgotten that. I haven't lived it perfectly, but I've never forgotten that John Hunter spoke on that subject when I was 20 years old. That's our subject for this morning. And uh, we're going to have it on the screen, and it's John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. I'm the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me, believer, in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he does something we've got to talk about this morning. He prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You're already clean. You're already believers because of the word. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me. That's a command. And I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, difficult words here, He is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them, and they cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be authentic followers of me, disciples of Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father, open the eyes of our hearts that we might grasp this essential truth. 
May we not walk away from this place simply more, knowing more, but changing much. And the way we decide to live close to the vine, close to Jesus, we ask in his name. Amen. Jesus, in chapters 13 and 14, began the upper room discourse, dropped a couple bombs on the guys, and says, I'm out of here. They didn't know how to take it. And when Jesus began to teach more after he said he was leaving, they asked questions that revealed the fact that they really didn't listen to what he had just said. They just wanted to know if they could go there too. At the end of chapter 14, they get up and they leave that place, the upper room, and they walk down the Kidron Valley, and then they're making their way to Gethsemane, for it's the night of Christ's betrayal, and then the six trials, all during the night before he's crucified that next day. And perhaps along that way, Jesus Christ gets hold of a vine, a grape plant, and uses it as an illustration. So what he wants to do is encourage the fellows. And we will find this summation of the book, for there are three sections of chapter 15, that, and the first of which we are going to look at this morning. It's the relationship that the disciples needed to know they must have with Christ when he was seated at the right hand of the Father and the Spirit of God was in them, John 14, 17. Not with them, but in them. The key term is abide. It's used 10 times, the Greek word meno, in 11 verses. And the key concept is union. Union with our Savior. The middle section talks about love. It's the word agape that's used four times in six verses. And that talks about, with an emphasis on communion, the relationship that we have, one with another, believer with believer in Christ. But let's be sure to know that persecution is going to come. That we're going to be ostracized and criticized, set aside, not included. In fact, the word hate, the severe word, is used seven times in those ten verses. For Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples on what it was really going to be like. With him gone, the spirit indwelling, but the world wasn't going to be their best friend. They would express hate and it could turn into physical persecution rather quickly. So those are the three relationships that we will see in the upcoming weeks from John chapter 15. I want to give you three observations about this passage now in John 15, 1 to 8. And these three observations should really help us in our interpretation of this section of Scripture. The first one that I would like to give you is this. This passage is for believers only. If you're seeking this morning how thankful we are that you're here, and we want you to read especially John, John chapters 1 through 12, for there Christ is reaching out to the seekers. He's reaching out to the world that does not yet have a relationship with him. He tells them that he's the one that can transform their lives, much like changing water into wine. He's the resurrection and the life, the bread of life, the light of the world. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no mistaken words. 
He said these things. So if you are seeking Jesus Christ, that's a prime section to jump into. Get in the deep water, John 1 through 12. But now he's turning his attention to those who are his followers, his disciples, who are in him, as this section describes, who need to abide, not just be in him positionally. And so what he does is speak to believers in this section, Jesus specifically, as they work their way down from the Kidron Valley and up. Secondly, I'd like you to see this, that Jesus Christ is using a metaphor. He's using a metaphor of the vineyard, vines and grape plants. Now, not too many of us tend to vines and grapes. We may have been to Napa or maybe Sonoma. Well, not too many of us really know what goes on with, as they say, with high nomenclature, viticulture, the caring and keeping and production of wine through the vine. But Jesus Christ uses this picture, this metaphor of the vineyard. It was the best thing he could select because all of the Jews knew precisely what he was talking about. He was talking about that which is emblematic of the nation of Israel. It would be like asking you, do you know about the bald eagle? Of course, Bob. Well, everyone knows in America about the bald eagle. That's the way they were about the vineyard. And so you see that throughout Scripture. The vine was grown all over Palestine. It was a common occupation. It was the emblem of Israel. It was so much the emblem that Herod the Great, upon building the temple, chose to put this great gold vine on the temple, on the very front of the holy place, that he might get himself close to the Jewish people over which he was their king. In the time of the Maccabeans, you have the vine being the symbol on every one of their coins. It was their emblem, so everyone knew about it. But I want you to hear what God said about it in his scriptures. In uh, Psalm 80, verse 8, you removed a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations, and you planted it. In Hosea chapter 10, verse 1, Israel is a luxuriant vine. He produces fruit for himself. And then in Isaiah 5, 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, that key twelve tribe of Judah, his delightful plant. But here's what happened, and Jeremiah describes it well. That which was to produce great fruit and glory thus to God the maker did not obey. And went its own strange way and produced a foreign vine. Jeremiah 2.21, yet I planted you a choice vine a completely faithful seed. How then, how then have you turned yourself before me into the degenerate shoots of a foreign vine? That's what happened. God was not pleased, disappointed. So that's the second observation. Not only is this for believers, this section, but Jesus uses the most common emblem or symbol Available that all Jews would immediately understand. Thirdly, the primary subject of Christ's teaching is abiding in this passage. 
It's not bearing fruit. Although you see fruit, more fruit, much fruit in progressive stages, it is not the substance of this passage. In fact, nowhere in this passage, in these verses 1 through 8, are you ever commanded as a believer to produce fruit, but yet you are commanded to abide in Christ. So those are the three observations we're going to make. And now we're going to look at the process of fruit bearing. In uh, John chapter 15, Jesus begins to teach about the process of fruit bearing. And uh, he mentions in verse 2, he mentions the vine dresser, the father. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Well, Jesus Christ is talking about himself as the true vine. And remember, as the true vine, he's not saying that Israel was the fake vine, but he's saying that it was merely emblematic, symbolic. No nation can do what I can do. No church, South Spring, can do what Jesus can do. You see the point? So we don't put our trust in the nation of Israel, Jews. We don't put our trust in a church edifice or liturgy or activity. We put our trust in the true alethanos. By the way, Chris isn't in here, but the, the, the counseling uh, ministry that they have developed, aletheia, is from this word, which means genuine and authentic. Jesus is that, the genuine article, the true vine. That's the point of it all. And he is that participant. The father is the participant as he is the vine dresser. And we will see what he does in just a moment. And then we are the branches. And that's the most obvious. Uh, there's a sponge Bob and there's Bob the branch. Okay. And that's who I am. I'm just a branch. And I want you to know that that's the subject of what we do as we abide, as we are organically connected to that which is alive, not just inanimate, but alive, the vine, Jesus Christ. All right, so let's talk now about not just the participants, but the process of fruit bearing, all right? In, uh, in verse two, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Let's talk about the two things that the Father does. Well, the first thing he does is with a branch that does not bear fruit, he takes it away. What does that mean? And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Well, the, the first thing he does is take a vine away, or at least that's the way the English translates it. My suggestion, looking deeper within the text a little bit and the definition of the word, is that that Greek word iro could mean to take away. It also is used more significantly of lifting up. Maybe you've read the good work about the secret of the vine by Bruce Wilkinson. 
a classmate of mine a couple years ago at Dow Seminary, and he wrote something that really made that concept very, very clear. And it's true that this is probably what the Father is doing because he's talking about the growing season in which the vine dresser, the Father, is taking special care to nurture and nourish and provide and support and, and cause that vineyard to bear much fruit. So I don't think the emphasis is on something severe but rather something nourishing and cleansing. So I believe that when it says take away, in verse 2, it means to lift up and to clean off. That's the same word, a derivative of the word prune. So what the Father is doing is getting the dust off the leaves and the vine. And he's probably using string and some kind of attachment to a trellis, like for today at least. But he's, he's getting it out of the dirt so that it will produce more. And especially that's the first thing. And so what does he do with us? He lifts us out of the dirt and the grime of this world and says, I want to use you. I want to do something in your life. You are here for eternal matters, and I'm going to bring you to a point of real fruit bearing. That's the Father's job as the vine dresser. And secondly, he prunes us. Secondly, he prunes us. Well, I... I want you to know that pruning isn't something we're unfamiliar with. Pruning means to cut back. And in verse 2, he does it with purpose. And that is that we might bear more fruit at the end of verse 2. He cuts us back. Now, you're familiar with that. How many of you have had gardens? Come on, let me see your hand. Oh, man. All right, so the tomatoes, what do you do? when you go out there and you see all those... Uh, Beautiful blossoms, little yellow blossoms coming out of the green, and all of a sudden you see the little uh, tomato forming and everything. And, but then you, you look and you see all that fast growth, but you also see sucker shoots that begin to develop between the, the, the vine branches, the tomato branches, I should say. And so what do you do? You remove those, you prune those. We have... Uh, uh, a home that has a lot of plants and flowers. No garden, but a lot of plants and flowers now. My wife just absolutely loves to take us back to the Garden of Eden. I'm convinced of it. And does a wonderful job of it. And so we have these roses called drift roses. And if you have roses such as that, not knockout, but drift. And if you have those, then after they bloom that first time in the spring, what do you do? Well, you cut them back. Why do you cut them back? Because if you cut them back severely, which is, if, the, if the plant could speak, it would say, ouch. You cut it back so it will bear so many more fruit, so much more flower, so much more beauty, so much more fulfillment of what God designed that drift rose to be and do. So we all are involved in that. We cut back a crepe myrtle sometime in February. We cut everything back. We prune it. We're familiar with that. But are you familiar with the fact that that's what God as the vine dresser actually takes on as his occupation with you and me? It's purposeful and it's painful. Have you experienced God's pruning in your life? Has he cut you back? I recall about a year ago, I was sitting right here. I, I really couldn't do this when I preached that at that time. The reason was I had head back surgery. 
I uh, went through a little bit of pruning by my mind dresser, the father. It was, I guess you could call literal cutting, for it was back surgery. Laminectomy, where you have all these pinched nerves. I had four of them. I had uh, the stenosis, where there's a closing in of that spinal column. And uh, because of my young age, I had developed some arthritis and bone spurs and took out spinous process and laminectomy. And uh, Dr. Patrick told me, he said, Bob, now it's not getting back in shape. What it is is uh, learning to walk again. So that's what I had to do. It was painful. It was humbling. But my focus was on how much pain it really caused. I had to really learn to walk. And I had gotten to the point where I could not walk and had to hang on Ann's back to make it through the house, believe it or not. But it was for good, and that's the purpose of it. What's God up to? What is God up to in your life and me when he cuts back us as branches? Well, he's after more fruit. That's what he's after. And uh, it's kind of what James talks about. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect. And that word perfect means mature, not sinless perfection. Lacking in nothing. And then he says in verse 5, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now that really isn't for you in high school when you haven't studied and you really need God to intervene and reveal answers to you on that test. In the context, wisdom, but if any of you lacks wisdom, it's in the heart of you bleeding as a branch because of the pruning and the trial that has taken place. That's when you turn to God. That's when you respond and say, God, what do you want to teach me? And you will be amazed at how God responds to that in the midst of your pain when you ask for wisdom and how you respond to that pruning process. Now, Talk about that in just a little bit more in a moment. Let's talk about being a branch. What are we supposed to do? That's the Father's responsibility as a vine dresser to prune us so that we might bear more fruit. Very purposeful. But what are we supposed to do? Well, ten times we're told, abide. What does abide mean? Well, it says in verse 5, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And so throughout this, abide in me, the command in verse 4, we're told to abide. The, the word is, is a simple word, but let's try to grasp the concept behind Jesus' teaching. Abide simply means to remain in something or somewhere. It's used in chapter 1 of John, verse 38, as it actually describes where are you going to stay, as Jesus was addressed by a couple of John's disciples. Where are you going to stay? Where are you going to remain? Where will you have your abode abide? But more than not, this word is used by Christ to talk about that union that is to be experienced, that should be constant, unceasing, a connectivity between you and your Savior, 
Christ and myself. There's not to be a severance, but that vital union of flow between the strength and the character of the vine into me, the branch. He produces, I merely bear what comes through from the vine through me called good works. That's what we're to do. Now, let me describe it more. Let's say that I, uh, let me tell you what it's not. Let's say that I, I, I had up here a two by four and I, I took a, a chisel and I took a saw and then I took a sharp knife and I began to whittle on it to where I got that two by four in the form of a sharp pointed stake that I could drive into the ground. And then I took a big sledge hammer and I took it and I drove it into the ground and man, it wouldn't budge. Would you say that that, that stake was abiding? I would say, no, that's not what it's meant in this passage. What, what it means is this. To abide is to have something remain in its natural element so that that natural element nourishes and feeds and supplies and supports that which is essential for that thing placed in it to grow and to bear fruit. That's abiding, as Jesus is using it. Last night, and coaxed me into planting some uh, more roses. And so we were out there, and the soil had already been prepared. Good topsoil, some mulch to keep the water, but a lot of fertilizer. And so when we dug those holes, we took that drift rose and we placed it in an environment, its natural element, where it would flourish and produce fruit and reproduce after itself. That's the concept of abiding that Jesus wants us to grasp. The soil... The soil for our soul is the Savior. It is He, Jesus Christ. He's the one that supplies, nurtures, nourishes all of us. All those nutrients come from that unity that we have from the vine through us. So He produces, and our job is merely to abide, to stay close to. Now, I, I don't think we're very good at this in our Christian culture today. I think we're good at compartmentalizing Jesus. I think that there is the practice that is so prevalent of people coming to church when it's convenient, when there isn't something else that is bearing down upon them. And they come and they may give an hour to maybe maximum of three hours on that given Sunday. And we say that that is yours, Lord, and, and we kind of want as consumers to be blessed during that time. And then we leave and we get on with life that is ours for the rest of the day and perhaps the week. And may I say what Howard Hendricks used to ask us, 
at the seminary. How many people are there who will go to church when it is convenient on a Sunday morning and get under the Word of God as some guy up there waxes eloquent? But they won't, Monday through Saturday, walk across the room in order to get into the Word of God. You see, I'm speaking to all of us who are in great need of understanding that Jesus wants us to abide, not to compartmentalize. He doesn't want us to say, well, I go to South Spring, and look how good I am. We never would say that. But there's got to be a notch on some spiritual belt for coming here today. Jesus said, no. What I really want from you is an intimate, emotional connection where you abide in me as I abide in you, and there's no obstruction, no, in medical terminology, occlusion. Man, I want the flow to be incredible and incessant, unceasing. I want to come through you and produce stuff that you can't imagine, and you just walk with me and enjoy it and watch what I do through you. That's what Christ wants us to do. That's what abiding is. It's staying close and not just for a couple hours on a Sunday morning. It's making a lifetime of it. And what a joy it is when you feel that closeness to Jesus Christ. Well, I just want to challenge you with something. I I read a, a very challenging book called Irresistible by Andy Stanley. If you get into that book, be careful because it'll, it'll mess you up a little bit. But there are a couple things, and he's trying to do that. That's Andy. And, uh, but what I want to challenge you to do is something that especially Reed and I got a lot out of. This whole concept of this lateral horizontal ethic that Jesus uses in his own life. Uh, John 13, 34, and 5, a new commandment I give you that you love one another. Even as I've loved you, love one another. He doesn't say, as it says in the Old Testament, he says, as you have seen me for over three years, this is what I want you to do with one another. He leverages his own example on a horizontal level. This is the way you're to love. You're to serve one another. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus. All right, that is who he is and who and what he does with you and me. Be that way with one another. So then Andy goes and does something really tough for us. He goes, so ask this question. If that's what we're really to do, meditating in Scripture and obeying that kind of stuff, that's abiding Ask the question, what does love require of me? Ooh. Did you have to go that far, Andy? So reading, I've been asking the question, what does love require of me? You will be amazed at what happens, what Christ does in you, as you abide in the Word of God and ask questions that are applicational in nature. I love my wife more. I serve her more. I serve my neighbors more. I'm involved in relationship. I'm more generous with what I have. It's just amazing when you get into it. And doesn't that make sense? Because in Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, let the words of Christ richly, hear that, 
abide terminology. Let the word of Christ, let the words plural of Christ richly dwell within you. When you do that, not just come here on Sunday. See it? Jesus says this. Don't look at me that way. Jesus says this. When you do that, you abide in the scriptures. You meditate on it. Much like you let something simmer on a stove all day long. And you ask, what does love require of me? It's amazing what Jesus will do in terms of producing fruit and obedience in your life. You'll be a different person, so will those around you. That's what abide means. How about taking up the challenge and maybe even learn those two verses and say, what does love require of me? It's called abiding. Now, I've got to do something tough here. What does it mean, what if we don't? What if we don't abide? Well, look at verse 6. I don't want to skip over something difficult. Here it is. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they're burned. Does that mean I lose my salvation? Well, in John chapter 10, quickly, verses 20 and 29, you're held in the palm of the Savior, in the palm of the Savior, you're in the Father's hand as well. No one can snatch them out of your hand. Remember Chris taking that passage in John 10 and saying that we're really eternally secure? And no one is strong enough, no created thing. Romans 8, not 35, 39. Nothing created can ever have enough strength to cause us to be taken from Christ. We're still in Christ. Verse 2, every branch in me. See, you're still there, but you may not be abiding. So the point of this passage is this, in my estimation, that you can live a life as a Christian compartmentalizing all of your Christianity and not producing, excuse me, not bearing fruit that the vine wants to produce through you. You can live a Christian life sort of like the Corinthians were in a carnal way. Carnos, fleshly. And you won't have anything to say for your Christian life. Do you know what good a vine is? Ezekiel 15, 1 to 5 asks. What good is a vine if it doesn't produce grapes? If there are no grapes in your life, uh, you cannot take, Ezekiel say, said, that vine would and make anything out of it. Very simply put. You can't take that vine and even use it for baking, you know, making a fire. It's like straw. <laughs> And I even tried smoking one in the sixth grade, and it was worthless. <laughs> my mother asked me the question, was it good? One of the wisest things my mother asked me, because it forced me to be responsible and make a decision. No, Mom, it really wasn't that good. She said, I guess you learned something from it, didn't you? Vine wood is worthless. But here's the tough part. So are we. If we are not abiding, we're good for nothing as a Christian. And what happens? You're taken away when you die, and you are examined, hear me closely, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, you're examined very closely, closely at the Bema, the judgment seat of Christ. You're already in heaven, got it? But no rewards. His x-ray vision just consumes you with a fire. 
and everything is burned up. That's the actual literal rendering of 1 Corinthians 3, the judgment seat of Christ. No rewards, no proximity to Christ, no positions of responsibility and leadership because you've just lived for yourself and you haven't been abiding on this planet. So it's a severe verse, verse 6. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, just as an unfruitful branch is useless, so an unfruitful believer is useless. And both must be dealt with. And that's what happens. We're supposed to be a conduit of Christ by abiding, but we don't. Uh, And uh, let me uh, say something that Oswald Chambers said a while back. Does does God want you to abide? The key to the Christian life is not found in what I do for God or in what I know about God. It's found in the intimacy that I have with Jesus and the qualities as a result of that relationship. That's the one thing God has called me to and the one thing that will constantly be under attack in my life. It is, isn't it? It's that choice and that decision. You're not a victim, nor am I. It's that choice and volitional resolve to abide in the vine, not to compartmentalize my Christianity. If we uh, abide in the vine, then two things happen. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. Remember Colossians 3.16, John 13.34 and 35. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Something amazing will occur. Your prayers will be answered. You know why your prayers will be answered? And we all want our prayers to be answered. It's because when we spend more time in God's word and find out what his will is and what his mind is, then we begin to ask according to that mindset as we renew our mind in it. We begin to ask the way he would ask and all of a sudden we're asking according to his will and he answers our prayer. That's what it says in verse 7. And secondly, as you not only bear fruit, but more fruit and much fruit, here's the biggie. God is glorified. God is revealed. God is seen supernaturally. Things that you can't just uh, take for granted or call, well, everyone does that. It's a natural thing. When I really love my wife because I'm abiding in the vine, he strengthens me and causes me to serve. What does love require me? When I do that, people notice that when we have them over to our home. How about that? In fact, just inviting people over to your home. Isn't that an incredible experience? That's kind of getting lost to restaurants today. The intimacy is more at inviting people over, letting them get to know you. As we had this guy over on Tuesday night from our neighborhood who had gone through a divorce. What are we doing, folks? Let them see us. Abiding and loving as a result. Makes all the difference in the world. God is glorified. And you know, he deserves that. And I have a couple favorite verses. Do you mind? Because you know, Bob the Branch has difficulty. Sometimes Bob, not sometimes, Bob is tainted with self all the time. That's my sin nature, unfortunately. So I have to continually remind myself 
As Pine Cove reminds me, as I walk down, you got to go at, at uh, Kinsey and, and see the queue and see this huge sign. Go in there and say hello to the guys and gals, right? And, and so you go down that hall and it says, it's not about you. Wow, that's right. But way too much of my life is. And it's going to continue to be, unfortunately, till the Lord takes me to heaven. That's part of it, right? All right, but 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul just looks straight at the Corinthians in their face and he says, what do you have that you've not received? The answer is, hmm, nothing. Well then, I guess the credit should go to the one who blessed you, who gave to you, right? It's not about you, Bob. It's about who gave you that. And then in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, he says, this treasure has been given in these earthen vessels that the glory might be and the power might be of Jesus Christ. In other words, what you have here is a guy that needs surgery. What you have here is a broken vessel. I, I, I don't like to think of me as just a, a vessel, but rather a glass peanut butter jar that's very fragile. That's really the way each of us is. And so we're that way that we might not, as that peanut butter jar, receive the glory, but the one who fills us and empowers us and produces through us. Not about a peanut butter jar. It's about the vine, Jesus Christ. And then, if I can find another verse here. First Corinthians 3, 6. The Corinthians got a lot of correction. I planted, Apollos watered, but it was God who was causing the growth. You see that picture of the vine doing that work, flowing through the branch? I did this as God directed me, but the real growth, the transformation was caused not by me. I didn't do anything. And by the way, that's the solemn statement of verse 5. For apart from me, how much can you do? Answer me. For apart from me, you can do louder. For apart from me, you can do I love that. <laughs> it's truth. Anything that's eternal, anything that is really significant, anything that is transformational is not of us. It's of the vine. So all the more reason to abide. All the more reason. So I just want to ask you a couple questions in closing that I have to ask myself. Are you responding to his pruning process? Maybe it's in a relationship. Maybe it's in your finances. Maybe it's in your vocation. Maybe it's in back surgery, physical. How are you responding to his pruning? May I remind you of one thing? That encourages me. God is never closer to the branch he's pruning than when he is pruning it.
and you think he's far away when you're in pain. Not true. Never closer. How are you responding to the pruning process? Are you considering it all joy, as James says to do? Because as John says to do, it's producing fruit, more fruit, and much fruit. And secondly, are you staying close and connected to Jesus, really abiding, not just compartmentalizing your relationship with Christ? Hey, my brothers and sisters, let's abide. Let's just have that emotional intimacy and make it a priority and watch the fruit be born and be thankful that we can just be a part of the process of eternal matters. Bow with me. Father, we're really grateful that you would make things crystal clear to us, correcting us as the Word of God always does as it prunes us. Thank you, Father. We want to please you. We don't want to just live unto ourselves. We don't want to take credit for what you've done. We want to live for Christ, for me to live as Christ. Lord, teach us what, how good intimacy feels all over again in the vine. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.